Hello, welcome to this episode of The Complete Interpreter, a podcast about interpreting skills, mindset, and marketing from The Interpreting Coach. Some of you may know my real name, Sophie Llewellyn Smith. This is a podcast in which I aim to bring you holistic CPD, continuing professional development ideas that take into account the fact that you are not just an interpreting machine or a translation machine, but that you are also the owner of an interpreting business. Today we're talking about leaving information out when you're doing consecutive. You may be thinking to yourself, but why should I leave anything out? Surely it's not up to me to censor the speaker or to omit part of the information. And we'll be talking about that today. Is it ever okay to leave information out? What if you can't help it because you can't notate fast enough? How do you arbitrate between the bits of information in the speech and decide what you can leave out? Generally speaking, when I have this conversation with uh, professional interpreters or students, and I ask the question, what do you think that we can leave out without worrying too much about it? We end up with a list that goes something like this. Repetition slash redundancy. Self-corrections on the part of the speaker. Full starts to their sentences. Fillers, things like, um, uh, you know, I mean. Acronyms. Why say World Health Organization 15 times when you can just say WHO? Asides. Waffle explanations or details. Those are the things that I normally get in the chat box or on the whiteboard when I'm brainstorming with people. And on the face of it, all of that looks relatively uncontroversial because as a conference interpreter, if I have a speaker who's very, very waffly and says, um, uh, uh, all the time and has full starts in their sentences, especially if I'm working uh, on the private market and I have a client who wants me to hurry up and get on with it, you may have heard the idea that the consent should be a third shorter than the original, then of course I'm going to cut out all of that, all those unconscious mannerisms of speech that are making it more long-winded, more confusing and less fluid. And after all, as an interpreter, I have these public speaking skills that I've worked hard for. And as an interpreting student, it was drummed into me that I shouldn't um and uh and repeat myself. So on the face of it, it looks relatively uncontroversial. Then, of course, in my time, I've had conversations with court interpreters, for example, who've said to me, oh, but as a court interpreter, I have to say exactly what the speaker says, exactly what the witness says. So if they said, um, uh, uh, then I have to do that. And if they put in lots of fillers, then I have to do that. And I have to convey and translate literally what they said, which is not what I do as a conference interpreter. As a conference interpreter, I'm analyzing very carefully and editing the material so that the output is um, well delivered. And I have done some spoon feeding for my audience, frankly. So there's already the hint that it is not a neutral or objective process trying to decide what can be left out, because it's partly going to depend on the setting in which you work. 
as a conference interpreter, I take different decisions from a court interpreter, for example. If we go back to the list that I gave you of elements that could be left out without too much thought. Well, the top one on the list was repetition or redundancy. But what if you have a speaker who is using repetition of a keyword for effect? It's a rhetorical device. Now, is that important or not important? If the most important thing that your speaker is trying to do is achieve a certain tone, then it could be very important to keep the repetition in. After all, thinking about translation theory and Mona Baker, if our role as interpreters is to try and have the same effect on the audience as the speaker was aiming for, then when it comes to matters of tone and style, it could be very important to try to keep some of those rhetorical devices or turns of phrase in the speech, even if from the point of view of the facts, those things are not very important. Uh, what about another example? Asides, a speaker who digresses or has little asides. You might decide that they're not relevant to the main thread of the speech, so they're not important for your audience to know. Or those asides may be where the speaker is giving their personal opinion or injecting little notes of humour. So perhaps the speaker is aiming for an effect to lighten the mood, to make the audience laugh, to establish a rapport with the audience. And it may be that it's part of your job as an interpreter to get that across. So the asides may actually be one of the most important parts of the speech. What about details, uh, descriptive vocabulary, examples in a list? Well, those things may be relatively trivial if the point of the speech is to convey facts and figures or they may be very important to set the scene um, to give a particular style to the speaker's delivery i'm sure you're getting the idea that it's not as straightforward as it may initially appear and that much as i would like to give you a list of things that you can just leave out without question every time uh, that is simply not possible now, let's try and establish a hierarchy of what could be left out from the least controversial to the most controversial. And again, there's an element of judgment here, but I'm basing myself partly on a section in a book by Seton and Durant. I may well be mispronouncing that latter name, so I apologize if that's the case. At the top of this hierarchy of what you can leave out without um, losing sleep over it, would be pure redundancy. For example, verbose phrases, I'm sure if you're interpreting between Italian and anything else, that will ring a bell. Or redundant pairs, for example, if someone says, um, this is an unexpected surprise, or this is a terrible calamity. Well, the word calamity encompasses the word terrible. The word surprise implies that it is unexpected. So you don't have to put both of those words in there. You can just cut one of them out with no problem whatsoever. Next in our hierarchy of, of what is uncontroversial to leave out, you might have what is already known to the audience or what is obvious to the audience. So if they already know it, you don't necessarily have to say it, especially if you've said it once already in the speech. 
One very pragmatic example could be if you have a very fast speaker who has slides and they're reading figures off the slide or they have a graph on the slide, instead of saying those things out loud, you could say, and here are the figures on the slide which illustrate my point. Next on our list, we might have information that can be conveyed using intonation or word stress. Sometimes you don't have to use a lot of words to convey an idea. And so to give you a trivial example, instead of saying, now I'm going to move on to the next item on today's agenda, you could just say, moving on or next, as long as the context makes it clear that you're moving on to the next item. After that, and perhaps beginning to be a little more problematic, you might have rhetorical devices, expressions, eloquence, all those things that go towards making up the tone of a particular speech. And I've already alluded to the fact that that could be less important to the facts than the facts and figures, or it could be the most important thing in the impression the speaker is trying to make. So you will have to come to a judgment about whether you can leave that out or not. Then we have list items, list items and figures. Often people will say to me, oh, well, if there's a list, you can leave some of it out. So you could give three out of five points on the list and just say among others. And that's absolutely true. You can often do that if the list is illustrative of a point and if it is non-exhaustive, especially. Because in that case, as long as you've given the point, you don't necessarily have to give every single example on the list. You can say among others, you could generalize what's on the list. If your list was um, cabbage, kale, leeks and spinach as an example of what can be grown in a particular region. Uh, you could talk about the vegetables that can be grown. But if the list is the point that the speaker is trying to make, then you can't leave out one of the items or just generalize. For example, if somebody says, and here are three sanctions that must be applied immediately on Russia, and then they list the three, then that is not an illustration of, an, of a wider point. It's not an illustrative, non-exhaustive list. It is the point that the speaker is trying to make with all three items. So that you cannot leave out and you may have to sacrifice other information in order to make sure you get those three points. Similarly with figures, sometimes you can leave a figure out. If the point the speaker is trying to make is that the budget is much bigger than last year or inflation is much higher than last year, then you may not need to give a figure. But sometimes the figure is the point. For example, if you're in a committee where your speaker says, and this month we exported so and so many tons, 3,656 tons, and that is the important point that they're trying to make, then you can't leave that out. You have to sacrifice other information uh, or get some help from your colleague in the booth so as not to miss that figure. In thinking about what to leave out and trying to come to a judgment, there are certain questions that you need to ask yourselves. And I think sometimes we do this unconsciously. I don't sit there at the beginning of a meeting asking myself these questions. 
And often it has to be said, I work in similar meetings. And so the assumptions are very similar each time. But here are some of the questions. What is the purpose of this speech? And I don't mean that in a kind of existential sense of what am I doing here? What's the point? Uh, but more, what is the speaker trying to achieve? Is the speaker trying to convey facts and figures that the audience need to know? Or is this for effect? Is it a eulogy at a, um, at a funeral? Or is it a call to action to try to galvanize somebody? Or is it, um, is it the government apologizing for a terrible historic mistake or what? So what's the purpose of the speech and what assumptions are you making about the audience and what the audience knows? The way that you interpret some certain things will vary depending on your audience's assumed knowledge. For example, if the audience is a group of experts on electricity generation and you are interpreting something that contains a lot of figures with units and kilowatt hours and all of this, then your audience will want to know that. But if your audience is a group of lay people trying to understand whether solar power is more efficient than wind power, then you may not need to give every single figure and unit. So those are some big questions to ask yourselves. And to wrap up, I will say that when it comes to deciding what to leave out, there are four very important factors to take into account. The first is your client's expectations of you as an interpreter and how much of the information they're expecting you to get. I've already illustrated this to some extent with my court interpreter example, where the expectation in that setting is that you will say everything. The expectation at an EU accreditation test, in my experience, is that you will say pretty much everything. They will forgive you for omitting some secondary information, maybe a few items off a list of examples, um, but they are basically expecting that you'll get the whole speech. So the idea that you would be a third faster because you'd left out a third of the information is definitely not the case for an EU accreditation test, for example. On the other hand, you might find that if you're working for certain clients and you're out there in, in the field uh, doing relatively short chunks of consecutive, they might not expect you to, to relay every single word and maybe they're okay with you summarizing some of it. So the client's expectations are factor number one. Factor number two is the audience's knowledge or what you think, what you assume the audience's knowledge is. I've given some examples of that and how it can determine whether you leave information out or not. In fact, your assumptions about the audience's knowledge and understanding of a topic will sometimes determine whether you add information. For example, if you hear something very, a very cultural, culturally specific term in, let's say, Chinese, and you're interpreting for an English-speaking audience, you might have to give a few words of explanation so they even understand the concept. Because if you just translate the term, it may be completely meaningless to them. So sometimes we act as cultural mediators and add information. 
And uh, in this case, our assumptions about what the audience can be expected to know will determine what we decide to leave out. Factor number three is the speaker's intentions. What effect is the speaker trying to have on the audience? And of course, factor four, let's not forget this, is your abilities as an interpreter. What can you cope with? If the speech is very fast and very dense, you simply may not be able to write down or recall every single thing that you wanted to. And then it becomes a matter of coping strategies and survival tactics. For example, can you summarize the information in the notes? Or do you end up leaving out something that you wish you hadn't, <laughs> you didn't want to, but you had just reached the limits of your abilities when it came to note taking or active recall? And in that case, maybe you can look at some of your note taking technique to see if you can improve your ability to note take when the material is very fast and dense. I will finish off this episode by telling you a little story which comes from a long time ago when I was a very young interpreter, my guess is I was about 23 or 24. I was working in a meeting of veterinary experts in Brussels at the European Commission. And I was working with someone who was uh, very much senior to me, a colleague from the English booth. It was a two day meeting. And at the end of the first day, the representative of the secretariat who was speaking French said something and it was my turn to interpret. Um, now, if you don't understand French, this story will have very much less impact. But anyway, what he said at 6 p.m. <laughs> as I was getting tired after a whole day of interpreting was, eh bien, messieurs et mesdames, ce que nous faisons là, c'est de la masturbation intellectuelle. Now, I was a little taken aback hearing a representative of the secretariat saying that what they were involved in was intellectual masturbation. And so I definitely had that split second of thinking, oh, uh, what should I say? How can I possibly translate this? Um, what, what sounds acceptable in French is probably not going to sound acceptable to my English speaking audience. And so I left it out or I said something um, very much less punchy and vivid, shall we say. And then I switched off the microphone and turned to my colleague and said, what would you have done in my shoes? At which point he went, oh, well, if it was me, I would simply have said, turned the microphone on and then I would have said, uh, the speaker is engaging in schoolboy humour and the interpreter will not descend to that level. <laughs> so... I digested that and thought, well, I don't think I would ever have been able to say that. Uh, but never mind. OK, too bad. And I went home with my tail between my legs, feeling that whatever I had done, it would have been wrong, probably. And sort of mulling over what what I felt I really should have done in that situation. I couldn't find a very good solution. Anyway, we came back for day two the next morning. And the same speaker took the floor. First thing, he switches on the microphone and he goes in French. I heard last night that the interpreter in the English booth did not translate me when I said that we were engaged in intellectual masturbation. And today I'll go even further and saying that what we are doing, ce n'est pas simplement de la masturbation intellectuelle, mais de l'enculage de mouche. So he went even further with his uh, kind of obscenities. 
And so there I was stuck again, trying to decide whether it was appropriate to interpret um, rude words in this way, but also feeling rather aggrieved that I was being called out basically for having left something out. And if you think back to the, the four factors to take into account when deciding whether to omit something, I think if I had been clear about the speaker's intentions, then I would simply have translated it verbatim because this speaker was a stirrer. He liked to wind people up. He liked to create a particular effect on the audience. Uh, sometimes he was quite abrasive or nearly insulting in the way that he spoke to the delegations. And so he was he had clearly used those words deliberately to create a particular effect. Personally, I thought it was quite obnoxious. But professionally, if I had been trying to achieve the same effect on the audience as he, he had, then I think I should have interpreted it literally. Anyway, that brings me to the end of what I have to say about leaving information out. Maybe I should have uh, omitted that latter example. On the other hand, I'll be interested to hear what you think and whether you would have left that in, in my shoes. Also, please do let me know what you would like me to talk about next time. You can send me an email at info at com. I look forward very much to hearing your thoughts and see you next time.